Um, so I'm Amanda, I'm the CEO of The Tablet, and um, this is our third in the series of um, the review of what's gone on at the Synod. Um, and this is um, a series of webinars that's been sponsored by Notre Dame University Australia. And we're delighted tonight um, to have Ruth Gledhill, who's the assistant editor of The Tablet, and she's going to talk to Professor René and uh, the Reverend Professor Eamon Conway, um, about what actually went on at the Synod. Um, I've noted as well we've got Austin Ivory on the call, so we might pull him in um, for a few questions. Um, so over to you, Ruth. Many thanks. Thank you, Amanda. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for coming. Um, this is the third, as Amanda said, in our series of webinars on the Synod, sponsored by the University of Notre Dame, Australia. In the first one, we discussed decision-making versus decision-taking, and in the second, looked at the tensions between the local and the universal. Tonight, we have Professor René Cole Ryan, National Head of the School of Philosophy and Theology, and Reverend Professor Eamon Conway, Professor of Integral Human Development, both of the University of Notre Dame, looking at what happened in Rome and how well did the Synod succeed in being open to the spirit and keeping structured, were both successfully done. Professor Cole Ryan has been with the university since 2011, and before that, she was a researcher at Louvain. She teaches aesthetics, philosophy of the human person and political philosophy, as well as courses that emphasize the importance of Catholic intellectual tradition. She serves on the reference group for studies in Catholic thought, which reports to the Australian bishops. And she was a delegate for the Plenary Council of Australia and is a non-bishop member for, the Oce for Oceania for the Synod on Synodality. Father Eamon Conway was also at the Synod as an expert and advisor, one of a group of 24. His research interests at Notre Dame include the works of Karl Rahner and Hans Urs von Balthasar, faith and culture, and especially the interface between culture, technology and religion. In recent years, he's been at the fore of advocating for Catholic education. A past president of the European Society for Catholic Theology, Professor Conway is chair of the Peter Hunemann Foundation for the Advancement of Catholic Theology in Europe. So it's wonderful to have these two people here tonight, um, not least because they've actually been in Rome for a month and now they are able to talk to us about what happened. So Renee, could we go to you first? And um, we're all very keen, I think, to hear what your impressions were and how it all worked. Thank you very much, Ruth, um, and thank you, uh, thank you indeed for this webinar. It's great to see everyone here, um, and a, a shout out to Austin. Lovely to see you again as well. So, um, I was, a, or I am, a so-called non-bishop delegate to the synod. We always find the terminology around these things a little bit strange, sort of bishops and non-bishops. When you throw, um, when you throw the non-bishop. Um, bucket into the air. What comes down, I suppose, are uh, that, of course, there are women. There's been a great emphasis placed on that, that for the first time women are involved in a synod. We also have lay men. Uh, we have religious laymen, uh, sorry, religious men and women. 
And we also had several deacons from different traditions present in the assembly. So you can imagine with this and then with all of the bishops and archbishops included and cardinals, that there was just a tremendously rich group of people speaking with each other and learning from each other. So I'd say that's one of the great sort of first outcomes of at least this assembly, that the people in that room got a great sense of what it means to be church and all of the different issues that are going on but also just the different personalities and characters um, whenever you have so many people in a room like this interacting with each other you never really know what it's going to generate and I think that a lot of what was generated was very very good so that would be a very um, a very positive thing I think the the synod assembly itself was a spiritual event. So this is something that Pope Francis really emphasised toward the beginning of everything. And so while um, there has been, and I think rightfully so, quite a lot of emphasis on the so-called hot button issues, some of which were discussed at the assembly, um, that needs to be balanced with appreciating that this was really a moment where the church was coming together to listen to the Holy Spirit, to understand what it is that God wants us to do going into the future and to really understand where we are as the Catholic Church right now. So we began with a three-day retreat. Um, the members went off to another location and on retreat we heard from in particular Timothy Radcliffe who really sort of set the, the scene for us in thinking through what it was that we were about to do and he didn't pull any punches in that he really emphasised that this was going to be difficult, that listening is difficult, that coming together and appreciating just how many issues we face as a church and a society would be difficult, but that it would be a very encouraging thing for the world to look at this and to see that this was possible. Liturgy also was present throughout the the sort of rhythm of everything. So we all were, we began with um, an ecumenical vigil, actually, and then the first day of the assembly, we had mass in St Peter's Square, and I think that that was uh, that was quite a moment because the non-bishop members proceeded first into the square before the um, the the bishops, um, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, etc. And so that this was already a moment of significance that here we were together processing into the square and we were beginning with mass. And then every well, there was mass every day. Um, in, in St. Peter's, for those who could make it, it was also happening in the different places that we were staying. But every time we started a new module of the Instrumentum Laboris, there was mass within St. Peter's Basilica. And then we had prayers throughout the day, actually in the assembly. So I think that should be emphasised as well, that this wasn't just us talking, it really was praying. And then, of course, there was the rhythm of the days. So you may have read some of you about the method that we used, which was the spiritual conversation. And I can, I'll speak to that in a moment. Um, but the, the rhythm of the days itself was such that we would start always with sort of thinking through as an assembly what it was that we were about to discuss. There would be inputs from theologians um, and then some direction from the secretariat and then, and that would usually take half a day. And then there would be maybe three sessions where we were simply working in groups. So it was the groups of the, um, of the, yeah, the little working groups. 
And there were about 12 at each table for those groups. And the method that we used was that of spiritual conversation. So what that basically meant was that we went around in rounds. We had a facilitator with us. We were appointed a secretary, which was one of the members of the group. And then we elected a reporter for the group. And the reporter was to work with, worked with the secretary and then would read back a three-minute speech, which captured the conversation that had happened over the sort of day or so and read it back to the full assembly. So what this meant in practice was that we would come in um, on the first day, we had the question that we were considering at our particular table, the tables were divided into language groups, the groups shifted in membership every time we shifted in a module. Um, so we always got to know more and more people. And actually, a lot of the bishops who had been at previous synods said, for them, that was one of the most amazing things. In previous days, in the old synods, you might get to know the person you sat next to every day. But at the at this particular synod, you just got to know so many different people um, because you were interacting with them so much and at a fairly deep and rich level as well. So we would begin our module by each of us giving a, um, a, four, <clears throat> a prepared, sorry, four-minute input, and then we would pause. And then there would be a round where each person, person would speak for a, a minute or so saying in the voices of the group, what I heard was this. I think that this might be where, where we need to go. And then if there was time, and I think this is the part that I found difficult, if there was time, then there was a bit of free conversation, but sometimes there simply was not time. So there was sort of the pressure of needing to capture what was going on. And what we did was that we wrote um, reports as a group, the secretary taking everything down, the reporter agreeing that this was something that needed to be read. We all needed to vote that this is what, what was to be read out to the assembly and submitted. And in those reports, we were asked to look for convergences. So what do we agree on? We were asked to look for divergences. So things where we realised that there was a tension that really needed to be worked through, more work needed to be done. And if there were any sort of concrete proposals that we might like to suggest, then they would be go they would go in there as well. And then I know um, Eamon and Austin could probably talk about how the experts took all of this information and, and produced the, the synthesis report that we have right now as well. So all of that work would sort of take... Um, you know, three sessions by the time you went went through the um, the process of having the spiritual conversation, speaking through everything, agreeing on what was going on in that report. There was always a bit of back and forth there and then um, submitting the report. And then we would go into general assembly. So there would be um, usually two sessions, I think, if I'm if I'm right, of, of general assembly where all of the reports would be read out. So those three-minute reports, and you can imagine we're all at those tables. We have monitors in front of us. Every time um, we went in, we needed to sign in with a QR code to a to the pad that was on the on the table in front of us. Um, and that meant that the system kind of knew that we were there. And if you um, if you said that you were going to speak or if, if you were reading out a report for your group, then the camera would come around to you, the mic would be on, and there you would be in front of the whole assembly on the, um, on the tablet, you know, on the monitors in front of you. So that was uh, a bit surreal at first, but I think we all, all got quite used to it. And uh, so you'd have all of the reading of the reports. Oh, I forget how many tables there were, 30 plus tables. So that already took quite a while. And then there were free interventions. So the free interventions would be people, um, the goal was always to speak about what had been heard in the reports, which might 
further the process of discernment of understanding what it was that we needed to do as an assembly going forward. Um, it was obvious that some people had sort of prepared an intervention maybe a couple of weeks before and by hook or by crook, they were going to read about that intervention. So sometimes there was a little bit of a lack of, um, I don't know, uh, fit between what it was that we were thinking about and where this was coming from. So that didn't happen very often, but it did happen. It was always noticeable when it did. What was great was that I think toward the end of all of this, people really did get into the um, appreciation, which I hope will carry now into the second assembly, that it was better to listen and to respond in a really helpful way than it was to just come in with a pre-packaged um, thing to say. So I think that was um, that was something that I certainly took away from this first assembly. Um, of course, everyone wants to know where this will lead to now. So we, we came to basically the end of, I would say, a fairly gruelling month in many ways. Grueling in the sense that there was this schedule that we kept to that was basically 12-hour days for five days a week and then half a day on a Saturday. And I know that the experts had a different experience of that kind of rhythm of the weeks. This was for four weeks and we had a visit to the catacombs in between. We had all of the, um, there were rosaries, there was a an evening for praying for migrants and refugees. We certainly had a very strong sense that we were here in Rome together. I'm not in Rome at the moment, I'm in Australia at the moment, but anyway, we were in Rome together and uh, we were doing something that was very significant, but there were wars raging around us at the same time. So everything in um, in Gaza sort of um, erupted while we were there. And this sort of certainly lent a certain intensity to what was going on as well. Um, what will happen between now and the next assembly will be interesting. I think the Secretariat has now taken a lot of our comments and suggestions and they're working through what the next assembly will look like. I wouldn't mind if the um, method changed somewhat because I did find that the spiritual conversation method was very helpful, but I don't know that it's the end goal of the way that we would be doing synodality as a church. Um, I, I like to think of it as more of a stage on the way that maybe we could have a bit more open discussion um, that wasn't as tightly um as tightly controlled, but that's something that I'd be interested to hear um, what others think about that as well. Um, when we come to the next assembly, I assume that there will be a new instrument of the Boris. There'll certainly be an agenda we need to look through, and we will need to look at what have been pointed out as some of the hot button issues, of course. But I, um, but I think that we will need to look beyond that as well. And mainly, the question we need to ask ourselves is how is it that we can exercise co-responsibility better because that's one of the main things that has come out from our discussions about synodality that it's really about being responsible as a church together to listening to God and to responding um, so that's it in possibly a, a little bit longer than I had anticipated Ruth I'd better stop now well, that's really fascinating. And, you know, I could listen to much more of that, um, but we haven't got time, unfortunately, right at the moment. But I, I hope we'll hear more from you um, during the evening because um, that raises, you know, a lot of questions, I'm sure, in people's minds as well as interest. So, Father Eamon, um, I, I, I think I understand that your experience there was quite different because your role was slightly different. So 
That's right. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Good evening, everybody. It's lovely to be with you. And thank you for coming online this evening. Uh, and greetings from Ireland. Uh, I'm back in Ireland on leave just at the moment for a couple of weeks. Uh, you could call it uh, post-synodal stress disorder. <laughs> We're all trying to recover here uh, a little bit after it all. But it's it's lovely to be here. And I am just about ready now, actually, after almost two weeks to, to talk about it, because it was quite an intense experience. And I think one of the things we might be asking ourselves is, you know, have things changed? Is there is there anything really of substance that's different? And of course, some would be wishing there were is change and others would be wishing that there isn't too much. But I can assure you there is change. And maybe I can do that by um, just commenting that 10 years ago, I was at a synod, the last synod uh, under Pope Benedict in the same capacity uh, as an expert. But it was a very different experience. So in the Paul VI complex in the Vatican, there are two rooms. So you'll have seen photographs and images of the 35 tables uh, at which the members of the Synod were gathered around, uh, completely, you know, a variety of people as uh, lay and ordained um, religious sisters and, and, and uh, brothers and uh, the lay faithful and cardinals and, and so on. Back in 2012, and right through really synod since Vatican II, uh, over that over the forty years or more of synods, um, it was tiered seating, and people sat in strict uh, order of seniority, starting with cardinals, also by the year of appointment, archbishops by year of appointment, bishops, auxiliary bishops, all the way back up, and we so-called experts were in the very back row at the very back, just about got inside the door, and in twenty twelve I sat for four weeks almost, uh, right beside an American Benedictine from Santa Anselmo, who on the third or fourth day was already getting quite frustrating. He said, gee, Father, this is like being, excuse my American accent, gee, Father, this is like being on a transatlantic flight all day, every day, economy, and you don't even get to choose the movie. <laughs> you know, So it was terribly structured and scripted and, and really constricted. And so uh, every text, uh, and again, it was like three or four minute interventions, though without the silence to absorb them into the General Assembly, everything was scripted in advance. So we as experts actually had the text before even bishops spoke in the Assembly. And of course, there's only uh, generally only bishops who could speak. Uh, I don't believe there were any lay voting members uh, at all. Uh, there were some non-bishops, I think some of the priests representing their uh, the superiors general of religious orders had a vote, but that was about it. So my role then was actually quite a, I had lots of time to do long, beautiful walks between sessions and enjoy long, uh, sunny evenings in restaurants because we really, we weren't given an awful lot to do. Uh, our role was to simply, we were each to watch various aspects of the discourse in the Synod Hall and write notes about it and pass them in. And that was kind of it. Uh, it, it was a very tame role. And so also the, what came out of those synods, this process was entirely different. This was highly participative, highly organized. Um, Rene commented already and outlined the uh, conversation, spiritual conversations. I think if any of you have done any kind of, you know, guided retreats or, or, or therapy or anything where you've really got to reflect at a very deep personal level, you, you have some sense of how exhausting that can be. And that was the kind of tiredness we came away with, because this was much more a spiritual retreat, a spiritual adventure, than it was a parliament or a meeting or a discussion. 
And I, I think this explains something we were speaking about before we came online. You know, the, how I know some journalists were quite frustrated by the sense of confidentiality and indeed the word secrecy was used about the whole process. It, it certainly wasn't meant to be secretive. The opposite, in fact, and there were press conferences every day. But it was meant to create a space where people could really speak from the heart with all the vulnerability that that, I think, entails. And, and above all, actually experience being listened to. And if you think about this, in any one of those groups um, that Renee participated in, you probably spent four minutes speaking and only had four minutes speaking for, what, 45 minutes of listening. You know, and that's something we're not used to anymore. It's countercultural, actually, that that kind of experience of both listening and being listened to, uh, you know. And I think it really is a very powerful witness uh, in, into our world at the moment where so many people do not experience being listened to uh, at a place of depth in themselves. So we have a completely transformed synodal process in the Catholic Church. And that, I think, is the first thing. It's already quite... Uh, I revolutionary in a certain sense. I don't mean that in any um, political sense, but it has really been turned around. And the whole purpose of it is to enable us as church to listen to what God is saying to us, how God is calling us, recognizing that God is in the bits and pieces, as one of our poets in Ireland says, God is in the bits and pieces of every day, that God is in the ordinariness of people's lives. And so I see synodality as a kind of a process whereby we eavesdrop on God's conversation with God's people. We, we try to hear what God is saying in the day-to-day -day lives of God's people. And, and as, a, as a Christian community, then respond to that, to, to enable the church to be missionary, to enable the church to proclaim with joy uh, the gospel in, in a credible way. So I think a, a huge journey has already taken place. And as you say, we are in the middle of Synod 21 to 24. And in a certain sense, that's it itself is revolutionary. Until recently, synods lasted a month. The General Assembly was the synod. Now the General Assembly, and we're going to have two of them, are only moments in a synodal process that begins in the local communities and will be returning eventually to the local communities. And that in itself is, is quite revolutionary. And in a certain sense, while Renee and I can say we were at the General Assembly, many, many more people can say they participated in Synod 21-24. If you participated in your local community, if you participated in your continental stage, you participated in Synod 21-24. If you even only returned a form, to some extent, you were participating in that Synod. So really, we're seeing a very, very different process here, which I think is going to enable us to realize a lot of, and I come back on this point if you wish, but in a certain sense, what's happening is that we really are becoming the church that the Second Vatican Council intended for us. Oh, thank you, Father. That was really fascinating. And um, um, both of you have made it sound actually quite exciting. And, um, you know, almost, because it was quite difficult to get a sense of real excitement during the months because of course we couldn't hear you know what was going on in its dynamic sense so just hearing that now does um give a feel that our, you know our hopes and expectations for what this process might lead to in the church might actually go somewhere um so i'm really grateful to you for sharing i just wanted to ask you both um by the way if anybody is here and would like to ask a question do please post in the chat um for our guests um our speakers to address 
But I, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, we up my parish did do the synod seriously as we were asked to do in the Southwark Diocese. And um, there was lots of interesting things that came through from that process, um, one of which was the call for better homilies. And that also, I know from speaking to people involved in the redaction um, of the final diocesan documents, that was a call that came from all over the world. It was one of the main concerns. And I just wondered if around those tables and in the um, advisory capacity, are there any sense of of um, the parishes speaking um, to the church through the synod came across? Did you actually feel as though you were dealing with what ordinary lay people in the pews, um, like those of us who took part in it, had been sharing in our little parish groups? Um, Ruth, within the groups, that was certainly the sense that we were speaking not um, not at a very superficial or even abstract level, but it was really the experience of the local churches that was taken into the conversations and also of the continental groupings that we had been asked to consider. So sometimes we had people who were representing um, the continental sort of, um, I don't know, part of the church, but that was always very much based in where they were coming from in their own local communities. There was an appreciation that in some areas of the world there had been more local input already than in others. I know that in Australia, for instance, we'd just gone through a plenary council and I think that we were we had used exactly the same method that we're using in the Synod right now. And I think that our um, the feedback that we gave into this process was probably far less than if we hadn't just been through a plenary council because everyone was undergoing consultation fatigue. Um, there were some other places where, the, where this was the case also. But the other interesting thing is that what I came to appreciate is that a lot of local churches are already working with their bishops to embed a synodal process locally. Um, so that is already happening, and I hadn't appreciated that quite as much as I did when I was in those conversations. So they would talk about the way that their different councils were working, but also that they were having diocesan synods very often, that the way that parish councils and even diocesan councils were working was already according to a synodal method. So they were already quite used to listening to what was going on on the on the ground, and because that listening was already happening amongst the members who were in the in the room, they had that insight into what was going on in their own local churches. And then listening to others, just in, in that example that you've given about homilies, it, it was striking but unsurprising that across the entirety of the church, there were certain issues that kept on coming up and there were very, very grassroots le level issues. And I, I think that was very encouraging to me that that made me um, realise that really we were listening to the people on the ground or in the pews, um, doing all sorts of wonderful work within the church in various different ways when we were in that room. So yeah, very encouraging indeed. When you were giving your your talk, you you mentioned, um, oh, sorry, Father Eamon, did you want to come in on that point as well? Well, just to say that uh, I very much agree that, that I think the, the listening happened, just to say, make this point, the, the working document for this assembly, the the which was effectively the agenda for this assembly, was set from having listened to what came up 
in these parishes and in these communities. So they made their way into your National Assembly, that be Westminster through London or through Dublin, uh, through the national uh, synthesis, if you like. Uh, and indeed, in Europe, there were 39 bishops' conferences, I think, in pushing into the continental phase that took place in Prague, which set the agenda, along with the other continental stages, the one that Oceania, that René represents, into the uh, uh, into the General Assembly. So, first of all, the local communities were represented in the agenda, and then very much in the in the outcomes, I would think. So just in regard to the particular one, and there's loads of others, but you mentioned about the quality of homilies, I would say there's two outputs. One is the need to improve priestly formation, and indeed deacons who also preach, the need to improve formation for, for, for priesthood and, and, and diaconate. That's very clearly stated, uh, along with other forms of formation. And the second one is we have a very particular proposal that uh, that we look at the extension of the ministry of, of reader or lecturer, as it's called, which is now a ministry open to the non-ordained, whether that's in certain circumstances that could also include preaching. So in certain circumstances, uh, the question has been posed and, and it's actually a, a, a proposal to take forward, uh, whether in fact in certain circumstances, lay people, it might be appropriate of them to preach. It could be special occasions, it could be, Maybe, uh, you know, something, for example, you could imagine celebrating um, uh, jubilees of marriages that maybe uh, a married person would preach and so on. But I'm just saying that that, that was that was a way in which the concern about homilies was heard. And I think you can take that as 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 typical of other particular forms of listening to particular issues that arose. That would be quite amazing, actually, if you suddenly allowed, um, well, women, <laughs> as, along with men, to, to stand up and preach a Catholic homily in a Catholic parish. So uh, that's quite interesting. Um, I, I look forward to... Wait, w would that be come out now or soon or not till twenty, not till next year? Well, it's there as a proposal to be taken forward. I, I mean, again, we can talk more generally about what's to happen in the, in, the, in the 11 months between now and the next assembly. But I think if something is stated as a proposal to be taken forward, that means that certainly there is at least encouragement for local churches to experiment with these things in the coming months and see how could this be worked out in a way that obviously respects traditions, that respects local custom, what people are maybe ready for and able for. But we could begin tentatively to explore how to take forward some of these proposals. And again, that would be very valuable feedback into the next General Assembly. You know, if a local church says, well, actually, we took that proposal forward and um, this is how it worked out for us. And this is what we learned from it. I think that would be very concrete information to feed back into the next General Assembly. Uh, so, you see, I think an awful lot of this is going to depend on what local churches take back and start doing themselves. I mean, if we're going to be continually looking for a sense of direction from Rome, um, I think we'll miss out on opportunities for, for I think, appropriate creativity and appropriate uh, innovation in our local churches. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, so I wanted to ask both of you, um, in her in her address at the start, um, Renee mentioned the convergences and divergences around the tables. And I wanted to ask you both, were there any, what were the main divergences and convergences that came up, do you reckon? And were, were there anything particularly surprising? Are you able to talk about anything at all? Um, I mean, did you want to go first on that one? No. Having worked so yeah, yeah, sure. I, I I can go ahead. I think the the main um, 
Well, first of all, just the category of divergence. There were four categories, as Rene said, originally convergences, divergences, matters for further consideration and things to be taken forward now. I mentioned the homilies issue. At some point, divergences and matters for further consideration became one category, because really there was a sense of that any of the voiced divergences, and maybe people were being a little polite, but any of the voiced divergences really were things we needed to look at further and close. So, so we now have three categories, convergences, matters for consideration, and, and proposals. And I would suggest to any of our, our listeners, we're saying nothing here that isn't in the census report, which is available online in English and Italian. Uh, but to come back to the issue of convergences, the big convergence was that this process and this way of doing synodality was endorsed. 96% of those who voted, which was 346 people, 96% voted for lay members of synods. They voted for this extension of the, of the General Assembly. That is quite serious. And that means, I mean, there were something, I think, like 80, uh, Austin, I was speaking, or uh, WhatsApping with Austin earlier today on this, but I think there were 85 non-bishop members, which means that, take 85 from 346 if you're good at maths, the majority were bishops, and most of the bishops voted for lay members to be there. I think that's quite extraordinary. And that this is now, uh, and it's already in the guidelines that Pope Francis introduced, indeed the regulations he'd introduced for synodality anyway, but it got endorsement. It got global endorsement. And again, it's something else I think we need to register in our minds and hearts, is the global significance of this event and the global nature of this event. I mean, we in Europe, and, and I, I speak, I suppose, as a European in this context, we have to realize that we're a dwarfing and diminishing um, uh, part of the global church. We're probably about 17% at this stage. And I read something today that um, by 2050, the prediction is that 75% of Catholics will be in the global south. 75%. In other words, and this is how it was put, Catholicism will cease to be a Western religion. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty serious thing to think about, you know, uh, or predominantly a Western religion. So in terms of convergences, that's the one I put up there. There was a major convergence on the, on uh, by uh, endorsing Pope Francis's reform uh, of the synodal process. That's that's, that's um, really good to hear, because uh, there was a, a feeling I got. I think I read something that about bishops complaining that it wasn't a proper synod because the laity had all this kind of opportunity to take part. And if I may say so. Certainly some bishops did voice that. That view did not prevail. But that view, the very fact that that view could be expressed is itself a tremendous, and respected and heard, is itself an, a, an endorsement of how good the synodal process was working. Rene, did you get a sense of any particular divergences or convergences that... Um... Well, Ruth, there weren't any huge surprises, I suppose, um, in terms of convergences and divergences um, or further matters of consideration. I like the way the way that that's been put now. Uh, having worked through the plenary process in Australia with, in the drafting process, I, I, I tend to sort of go back to those categories, which are very similar but slightly different. Um, so with the convergences and divergences, I think that what Father Eamon has pointed out about the the endorsement of synodality as the way forward is very important. And also I would um, 
add to that or highlight that synodality is very much about appreciating that this church is a church on mission. And I think that came out very strongly throughout everything that we were looking at. And then what I think of as the kinds of issues that everyone wants to know about, we already know that they're issues. So there was no surprise there that there would be those points of tension um, and even disagreement. And it'll be a matter of how that that disagreement is managed as we go forward um, and then make proposals to the Holy Father about what might be done. Um, there are no real surprises there. What I found interesting is what Father Eamon was talking about, which is that the church looks very different in different places. I was very struck. This was my first time of being able to spend any time really with members of the African church. And there in some parts of Africa, it is simply booming. So there was one archbishop who um, who said during the assembly, you know, in the West, I'm shocked to know how many churches you're closing I can't build mine fast enough. So when I heard that, I thought that's really interesting because that means that the West should be listening to what's going on in Africa and actually probably set aside some of its presuppositions about what leads to growth. And in Africa, they're not as concerned with some of these, what I think of as kind of elite um, first world problems and issues they're focusing on something else. And I think what they're focusing on is really the message of the gospel. So they're focusing on charisma. Um, what does it mean to proclaim Jesus? What does Jesus? What difference does Jesus make in your life? And it's as simple as that in some respects. Of course, there are the complexities of all of the different social issues that they have there and all of the conflicts that they have there as well. But somehow it's the message of the church which has been there since the very beginning which is sustaining them and not only sustaining them but leading to immense growth so what is it that we in um in the western world in the european context i would even throw australia in there as well those more westernized areas of the world what can we learn from these places where there is immense growth we also talked about the need for prefer preferential option for the youth and that comes through quite a bit. Um, but I don't know that there's an appreciation necessarily of what the youth actually want or need. The youth are young. They don't have the experience. So there's this, how is it that within a tradition, you keep the tradition alive so that you can actually feed them and see how it is that they might grow. So, so there's a tension there, I think, between listening to what they say they want, and I've got a bunch of kids asleep here in the house right now, listening to what they say what they want, and then realising, well, no, you can't just have Cocoa Pops for every meal. You actually need to have some proper nutrition. So what is it that we need to do there? So those for me were the really interesting things that I took away thinking, and then they're not the ones that you would necessarily read about in the press, right? So uh, I think we all we all know what all of those issues are, but how is it that we actually properly accompany um, everyone locally, continentally, but how is it that even globally, universally, we could pick up on conversations? And some of the conversations that we had, I have sort of half a dozen things I need to follow up now that are very concrete things where I might be helping um, with some philosophical formation for seminarians in the Caribbean and with some work on formation, philosophical and theological formation, particularly for lay women in parts of Africa, I never would have thought going into the assembly 
that coming out, I'd have that that kind of contact. And that sort of speaks about the depth of conversation that we came to and really practical outcomes that we can all uh, work on together already. Thank you, Renee. Thank you, Renee. Father Eamon, when you were speaking, you mentioned um, the transform synodal process. And you spoke about it quite passionately. And often if we hear the word process in terms of how um, a body is functioning, you know, it can be quite um, an off-putting idea, you know, that the process is as as important in some ways as the um, message. Do you think there's any chance at all, this is a question for both of you, that a completely transformed synodal process will lead to a transformed church? Most definitely. I mean, well, first of all, if it is of the spirit, yes. And that is the question. I'm convinced it is of the spirit. But more importantly, this synodal assembly is convinced it is of the spirit. That is, I mean, you know, we have to accept whatever, whether those who, who like it or not, that this particular general assembly accepted that this transformed process is the one that the, that as Pope Francis said, to which God is calling the church in the 21st century. So that is where we're at as a global Catholic church as represented and, you know, nobody else can claim, I think, more representation than this synodal assembly. There are people who are elected, people who are appointed, um, and every single part of the world, as I said in another interview, from Mongolia to Mayo, I'm half a county Mayo man here in the West of Ireland. So from Mongolia to Mayo, uh, there was representation of local churches there. And again, I was very impressed by the way you talked earlier about how local communities voices where they heard and i think we might have expected that lay people and particularly there were some young lay people there were their digital influencers there there were students there um that they would speak personally but a lot of the bishops spoke very personally and indeed passionately and spoke about their loneliness and the difficulty of their office and i think that they took the freedom to do that and didn't hide behind the mask of the of their office um, or persona uh, spoke also of the uh, of the importance of this as a way of being church, uh, where, where where they had that sense of of trust in one another uh, to do that. I think that I, I wasn't part of the Cherkley Minori or the small discussion groups, but I was obviously uh, reading everything that came into us. Uh, just to say something else, because this may not be fully aware, and it, it, it was what I I suppose was dealing with a lot. As experts, indeed, um, Austin uh, it was in this role as well. So, you know, at, at the end of every module, as, as Renee described it, we had 35 groups producing 35 synthesis reports, if you like, of their conversations. And we had probably 150 individual interventions. And that was multiplied by three or four, you know, times. And then when we produced a draft synthesis document, we had something like 1,500 modifications from the flow. So this, what came out of the document at the end was owned by the group. And the fact that everything got at least 80% approval, most of it got more than that. Um, and the, the, the document was read for three and a half hours in the, lecture, in, in, the, in the Synod Hall, and people got to vote paragraph by paragraph on it. And, you know, so the, again, I think it modeled something that the world needs. Uh, if you think about the divisions and conflicts and wars and the power abuses and and as church of course we have you know, we have a very poor track record we have to own up 
to the, the loss of credibility that is there. But this is our best shot at recovering that credibility. And that actually, in humility and penance and, um, uh, I suppose, deeply acknowledging the ways we have failed in the past, nonetheless, to, to allow ourselves to be lifted up again uh, by the Holy Spirit and moved forward. I, I think that's very much uh, what we're invited to and what, what is actually happening in our, in our church at this time. So I would say dare to believe for those who, who and I think older people can, and many priests indeed, and one of the things we were concerned about is the, uh, the, the poor uptake, if you like, of engagement with synodality by priests, which by the way, in many respects, I can, I can understand. But that sense of weariness and tiredness, particularly perhaps here in the West, dare to believe you know that god is calling us to something new uh and to i think a wonderful place in and through uh this process and that it you know that this is actually in 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 god's hands really because i i think the process protects that so you, you asked me about the process I, I think what's going to happen now and we're going to see this and you know uh, those of my friends who are canonists are just waiting to get their hands on the whole thing and and start legislating <laughs> And of course, you, you can't legislate it, us into synodality, and it may be something else we can talk about. But there will be a need, I think, to adjust structures to reflect co-responsibility in the church. Uh, and that's and that's where I think it's going to be important uh, that this isn't just left aspirational, but we do revisit the structures to reflect that co-responsibility at every level. Renee, was that your um, feeling as well? Yes, um, it was. I have a slightly different take on structures, perhaps. So the the last part of the Instrumentum Laboris was about structures, and I found that the least stimulating module of the entire thing. I thought it could have been taken care of much more swiftly. And what happened um, or what I, what I heard in the reports that came out of that part um, were that many of the tables were saying, the structures that we have from the Second Vatican Council are really, really good, but we probably don't use them as well as we could. So, for instance, there are many places where lay people, which includes both men and women, can already take up roles of co-responsibility in the church, but they need to be given a chance to do so. So where I've seen um, just locally here in Sydney, this is happening a lot, where women are, are being given high roles in highly responsible roles in different ways uh, we have a female chancellor locally at the broken bay diocese for instance i know that that's fairly rare but that's something that's already happening and when you look into higher education of course there are women who are already involved when you look at your parish councils women uh, and you know lay lay women and lay men are already involved and at diocesan councils as well um, but that's not the case everywhere so I think it's more that we need to have this change of um, of spirit. I suppose that um, Father Eamon is talking about there is a there's a genuine debate about whether you can legislate synodality into happening. I tend to think no, you can't. Um, I'd be more in favour of looking at what we already have and saying, okay, how do we make sure that there is proper representation in the structures that we already have before looking for change. And what I appreciated um, sitting with people there, particularly from Ukraine and Syria, was that, and, and I've had follow-up conversations with them afterwards, they're going home to places where they don't have any water, 
um, where my Ukrainian um, friend was saying, you know, she she's looking after people who don't have arms and legs. Um, that's pre pretty harsh stuff to hear, but it also just puts things into context. We can talk about structures and legislation as much as we like, but are we actually looking taking care of our local communities when that's our focus instead of figuring out what it is that Christ would do to try to heal people in all kinds of ways. So, you know, what it, what is our mission there? So one very practical thing is if you're in a war-torn country and it's legislated that you have to have a parish or diocesan council and that there has to be a certain type of representation, what if the people simply aren't available and what if you simply can't meet? Well, then what you have to do is you have to apply to whoever the authority is to get a dispensation and all we're mm. up to at that point is a process of bureaucracy and red tape which I think is the absolute opposite of what synodality should be if we talk about hopes I have a number of tremendous hopes about what will happen with synodality my great fear is that it will lead to a clunk a, a more clunky system of bureaucracy um, and that's the opposite, as I say, of what we want. So I think we have to be very careful when we're looking at structures and synodality in that way. I think those are incredibly wise words of warning about the danger of being too wedded to a process. Now, we have got a question from one of our, our guests tonight. Um, FCJ Gumley asks, Pope Francis seems to be very supportive of women's voices being heard. How can we help him to continue and be even more open to women's participation in the church? So I suppose as the woman, you're just tossing that to me right away, aren't you, Father Raymond? I could see that, <laughs> that look on your face, yeah. Uh, well, I think a lot of it is in the ways that we've already talked about, looking at where women... So the, the one of the questions where I was on the table was about um, recognising and promoting the dignity of women. I don't think we're terribly good at recognition. So I don't think that we actually recognise the good that is already being done in various places and then promoting so that other women could take up the roles that are already very good um, in the church as we have it right now. So I think there's quite a bit of work that needs to be done there. Looking at the way that we are now operating in this synod, it's obvious that women's voices are being heard and that there's a contribution to the conversation that it's been recognised. Um, when that's missing, something is missing within the discernment process of the church itself. So women have a particular approach that they can take to different issues and when they're not being heard in all sorts of ways, then things will simply be left out. There will be blind spots. So that was evident in, in a lot of the discussions. So I think that just that process of listening and, um, and involvement will be increasingly important as we become a more synodal church. Um, so I I know that there's been a lot of emphasis put on female ordination. I'm one of those strange women who doesn't think that that's the way to go because I think that that actually eclipses all of the great different kind of work that women have been doing since the very beginning of the church. We would have no church at all if it were not for the substantial work that women have been doing all along and the substantial contribution that women make in the domestic church but also in the very public facing church in all kinds of ways so i would really hope that in any conversation going forward a great line light would be shone on that before we then go to any other considerations 
Um, so how is it that we recognise what's already going on? How is it that we make our structures breathe more synodally so that every voice is heard and everyone's contribution is there and is seen to be there? I think those are the starting points and then the Holy Spirit will will guide us in, in where we might go further as well. Thank you very much, Renee. Uh, Father Eamon, I've got some another question from one of our, our guests here, um, which I wondered if you could have a look at. And this is a question from Holly Ball. And um, she says, regarding growth in the African church, um, do you think the charismatic model is driving this growth? Um, because that's certainly the case here in the UK, in the Anglican and Catholic churches, um, that the charismatic model is driving growth and that it is especially attractive to young people. The honest answer is I, I don't know. I haven't really studied in any depth to answer that question, what's driving the change. Um, what, what I would say is that in the context of a global church, one of the great riches is that we can learn from each other. And we have to do that, I think, very respectfully mm. and then obviously very, very smartly in that not everything that happens in one particular local church is transferable to another. But nonetheless, that's, I think, one of the great things about the Catholic Church. We can see what is working well, as Renee said earlier, and see, can that be a source of inspiration to us? It can be, for example, that maybe in the West, uh, we, we have lost a certain level of confidence and trust in the power of the gospel. And, and those younger churches actually um, remind us of that and, 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 and call us back to that deeper sense of, of faith. Um, but also youth culture is very different, uh, as Renee said, and maybe young people are attracted to a more charismatic church. I think they're also attracted to a, a church which shows that extraordinary sense of care for the for the outcast, for the poor, for those on the margins. Uh, I think they're also attracted by a church that uh, shows great sense of ecological consciousness and care for our planet. And I think these are things uh, that came up at the Synod that were very much endorsed at the Synod. There's a whole section on caring for those who have to struggle with various kinds of poverty. Um, several times we spoke about the ecological uh, disaster that is happening in many parts of our world and and, and leads to other kinds of, of, of displacement and so on. And I think these are things that young people call us to be, to be um, credible on. And uh, they were very much, I think, themes that emerged at, at the Synod. So, I, I mean, I think I think we can look and see what's happening in other ecclesial contexts, discern that. I think it's about discerning what has that to offer to us in our particular context. And could I just say that in terms of, of how we address these questions, I think we will see at the next assembly uh, a, a, a desire and a demand, perhaps, to somehow structure the regional assemblies as instances of synodality. So that what happened in Prague what happened in Oceania and at the various other uh, levels, that they will have a role to play in, 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 in saying what needs to work in our area, what needs to happen, how can we support and encourage one another uh, in our local churches coming together in a particular region. So this is perhaps the only way a, a truly global church um, can, can hold together. Uh, you want unity, but you also want respect uh, for for difference and for diversity and for ways to incarnate the gospel in, in, in particular local contexts. I mean, I think that's fascinating to think on how the process might work its way down um, through the regions to the local church. And I have to say, I think that would be wonderful if something like that could happen. Uh, we've got a comment from someone called uh, Bernie who says, 
I loved Timothy Radcliffe's image of the 11 months between the two installments of the Synod as being akin to an 18, sorry, an 11 month pregnancy. We are now in the important stage of gestation under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. So we are coming towards the end. So maybe I could ask both of you um, for a few words on is the church now pregnant with possibility? Well, I, I think maybe the last word should go to Renee on, on that whole issue of childbirth, I think. So she knows an awful lot more about it than I do. But uh, to, to just to make a few a few comments, I, I think it's already uh, to, we're already in a possibility of giving birth. I, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't think we should wait until next the next General Assembly to see the outcomes of that. I mean, there, as I mentioned already, the issue of 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 homilies and the and extending the ministry of the word of God. That's already, in a certain sense, got a, a green light, at least for, for experimentation. The whole area of digital culture and digital missionaries was mentioned. Again, th there's no need to wait for some magic word to be spoken from Rome for us to take that seriously at, at a local church level. Just payment for lay people in the church. That was another issue that came up. That doesn't require us to legislate. That requires us just to look with eyes and ears to see and hear how people who are already serving the ministry of the church are treated within the church. Um, greater emphasis on the church's social teaching and, and communicating, the, often considered a hidden treasure in the church. Um, transparency and accountability at all levels. And it was interesting that 92% of the participants voted for a particular proposal about how we need structures of accountability and transparency for bishops. How, how will bishops be held to account in the church? Um, and a wider consultation on the selection of bishops. I mean, all of these things got voted through. So I don't think we need to be waiting for some magic word to be spoken from all next year to actually begin to look at how could they uh, become alive uh, and in a certain sense be birthed now in our own local church context. So, Renee, have you got anything to add to that? Um, um... Yes. Certainly, Ruth. Just very briefly, um, I think we often forget that the mother is a ch uh, that the church is a mother, um, and so that continual um, birthing and, and care of offspring and really nurturing life in all of its different dimensions is what we should be as church. Um, so the next eleven months will, I hope, intensify our appreciation of what that means. Um, but I would hope that the next assembly isn't the only child <laughs> to carry on the metaphor, um, which comes out of these next uh, these next eleven months. I'm very hopeful that a lot of life is going to be generated um, during the time between the assemblies, throughout the the next assembly and beyond. Well, I must say thank you so much, both of you. You've both given me at least, and I hope other people here tonight a lot of hope for the future. And I've, I've found it very energizing, actually. And, and inspiring hearing you both talk. And um, it's given me a, a renewed faith in the process um, as well. Sorry to interrupt. Do we have a quick word from Austin? Do we have time for a quick word from Austin? Oh, um, we have sort of um, run out, actually, Austin. I'm really sorry. Um, I but, didn't um, need to say anything. I've written about it in the past this week. I've really enjoyed listening to Eamon and Rennie. Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks, well, I hope in a, in a future webinar, Austin, that you will come on board and um, give us some of your thoughts. And um, we certainly would, I, I, in a way, I don't want, you know, we, there'll be so much that we want to hear from you that we'll hope to do it on a future occasion. So Amanda, I'm going to turn back to you now 
and um, ask you to bring things to a close. Well, thank you very much. Um, our readers asked for us to take the lid off what actually went on at the Synod, and I hope this evening we've actually done that. Um, I've learned such a lot. Um, we do have Austin's piece coming into the tablet, so I'm sure there's a lot more to see. I know October for the tablet has been absolutely full on. I mean, we have been wall-to-wall -wall Synod. Um, we're very grateful to uh, Notre Dame University Australia, um, for um, enabling us to do all of these um, events. If you've missed any in this series, um, then please do uh, drop a note to myself or to Stephanie and we'll make sure you, you get the recording. And they were all fantastic um, webinars and um, you know we've really given everything we can uh, to the coverage of the Synod from as much as we could get. Um, it was a bit of a closed shop, but there's loads more to come. So please do keep your eyes on the tablet. Um, we've also got coming up the tablet webinar series. Last night we had a very emotional um, uh, webinar with Brendan Walsh um, and Maggie Ferguson and we talked about late fatherhood. Uh, coming up we've got John Burnside and Fiona Sampson and they'll be talking about uh, in conversation about being adopted um, and we've also got Joanna Murhead and Mary Kenny and they're talking um, about uh, family life and just what it means means in the 21st century so please do um, have a look at for further details um, on the tablet website it's tradition we've got the tablet advent reflection webinar series coming up so we've got four advent um, events and webinars with some of our favorite um, contributors um, shouldn't really say favorite but but they are and um, we've got sister Gemma Simmons who will um, end that uh, the advent fourth on um, Friday the 15th of December and please don't forget we have the tablet carol service coming up and um, it's Monday the 11th of December at Farm Street Church in Mayfair it's always a, a such a lovely occasion and um, so please do have a look for more details on our website if you're still looking for pilgrimages and um, we've got the 8th to the 13th Advent in Rome pilgrimage and let next year we have India churches and temples of the south quite like the look of that one myself and um, we've also got um, the trip to um, uh, Poland, um, which is six nights at the heart of the historic centre of Krakow, um, and numerous historical houses and a guided tour um, of, of the Jewish quarter. Please have a look for all details of that and they're in association with McCabe. Um, if you're not a subscriber to the Pastoral Review or the tablet, then just go to the tablet website and you'll find easy ways to subscribe, www.thetablet. And if you don't want to subscribe, we have many, many people on our waiting list who do um, in prisons and in schools. And we're going to start doing some, um, we've been asked to do some military chaplaincy and also the NHS um, are requesting copies of the tablet for their chaplaincies. Um, so you'll see more of that in the pages of the tablet. We've finished our development fund for this year, but please do know the tablet is a registered charity. And if you'd like to donate to this year's tablet fundraising campaign, then you can do so on the tablet website. Just go to tablet development fund. Many thanks for supporting this series of webinars. It's been an absolute pleasure and a joy meeting all the people that we've seen from the University um, of Australia, um, of Notre Dame, Australia. Thank you to Rene for organising um, and also to Father Eamon. And um, on behalf of myself and the whole tablet team, we just want to wish you a very good evening. Mm -hmm.